Dispatches, a production of Blurb Inc., is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone. This is Dan with Blurb. I am in New York City today with photojournalist Ron Haviv. How are you doing today, Ron? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. Better now that I'm here with with you. It's been a, it's been a great morning getting to catch up a little bit. Absolutely. So, uh, just a quick background on where do you where do you hail from? Where'd you come from in the world? I'm uh, from New York, American from New York. Awesome. I've heard of that. It's uh, it's a small place. It's a small place on the East Coast. Yes. So, how long have you been a photographer now? I've now been a professional photographer. This is now my 26th year. Wow, that's pretty good. That's um. You're still pretty young too. I mean, that's you got a long, long photo life ahead of you. That's I that's encouraging. I hope so. I hope so. so it's one thing to become a photographer, but it's another thing to become a photojournalist. And why did you choose that path over, say, commercial photographer? That's a really good question. Uh, one that I ask myself more and more as I <laughs> see my paycheck. But uh, the reason, actually, reason is that when I was in university, I was studying to be to be a journalist, to be a writer. Okay. Um, I was not a photographer. I didn't really have any interest in photography until until I got to university. An uncle of mine gave me a, uh, gave me a camera as a birthday present. He was a serious hobby photographer. Another friend of mine in, in school was also like really into photography, and I started to kind of be opened up watching them work, uh, and then of course getting my my first camera. And then, as many people know, that go to, go to university in America, it's incredibly expensive. So I was working at least three jobs uh, plus my loans to help uh, help pay for school, and one of those jobs happened to be by completely by chance working uh, for a fashion photographer, working with their agent and dealing with all the kind of the behind the scenes stuff of, of fashion photography, and I started to get to become exposed to photography as a business, and that kind of clicked in my mind like oh that's that's kind of interesting. But I didn't really think I wanted to be a fashion photographer. So just girls, it's a, decision. a lot of girls, a lot of money. Right. I mean, decision. I'm really not sure why I made that. <laughs> what's to <laughs> like about that? I mean, sounds drudgery. Well, you're young. You make mistakes, and then you pay for it for the rest <laughs> of your life. So. But to be honest with you, I, c- I can't really remember the the moment or the time when the light bulb went on over my head and said like, "Oh, you should be a photojournalist." But at some point, said like, "Oh, you should take a take a class and learn." like the basics photography so mm-hmm. I took a I took a basic introduction of photography class and then kind of taught myself the rest of it and then and then graduated what did the idea of being a photojournalist mean when you first said I think I want to be a photojournalist I think to be perfectly honest it meant that I was going to have a job where I didn't have to sit in an office under a fluorescent lights for 8 hours a day and it just meant like something to to go and travel and see things. So it was real no idea whatsoever what, what it meant at that particular moment, what that meant to be a photojournalist. And what does it mean now to you? And has that changed? Obviously, it's probably changed pretty bi- a, a lot since that, of really not knowing what you were getting into. Yeah, I mean, it changed, it changed quite quickly uh, once I started to, to become a working photographer, it changed almost immediately. But And how soon did that happen? How soon were you able to become a working photographer? Well, I, I guess it's the definition of what a working photographer is in terms of like 
getting getting making, work, getting assignments. I mean, I was starting to to get some assignments, I but I wasn't getting paid. I was working. I worked as an intern uh, f- for a small newspaper in New York, so I was mopping the floor. I was developing film. I was making prints, and then of course there was that one day where I was the only one there, and I got my first assignment. Go off and take a picture. The next day, I had my first photograph published. Do you remember um, what that was? It was a press conference uh, with the mayor of New York. I was, uh, one moment I was mopping the floor, the next minute I was <laughs> crawling around the floor of the uh, city hall taking a picture. The next day, the image was published. I had my credit in the newspaper, which was, you know, two, two point font. Yeah. And a newspaper that was so small, nobody but myself and my parents saw it. But How did it, it was feel? Pretty ex- it was pretty exciting. It was very interesting. Does it still feel like that to get published today? Yeah, especially now where it's it's you know so <laughs> rare to get published, uh, it definitely has that sort of same scarcity uh, feeling to it. But it was a very it was kind of a very interesting um, situation, kind of coming onto the streets of New York and and coming on the streets. I started to meet other other working photographers, and it was there that. I entered this community, and I think it's the same when somebody enters the community today where you're with a uh, group of men and women who are very dedicated to their work and very passionate about mm-hmm. about telling stories. And these people kind of put their arm around me and said, okay, this is what you do during a press conference, this is what you do during a protest, and let me introduce you to the Daily News or... AFP, which is a French wire service, and, and try and get you some more work. And, and it was an incredible welcoming mm-hmm. uh, experience. And I think it's one of the reasons why photographers want to give back to the next generation, because we sure. understand how important that is. And, and I think that you know, that was certainly why I do it, because I want to give back to all the people well, uh, that helped me. And I think it's smart, too, because there's a lot of mistakes you can make when you first get in, and some of those can be financial mistakes, and it also benefits you to help the up-and-comers to say, look, you know, don't give your work away to that client. They actually have budgeting, and so it actually makes the, the industry, I think, a little, a little stronger. I was helped by a friend of my father's who actually was one of the people that photographed um, Jack Ruby shooting, and he handed me a bag of equipment old Nikons and said, don't stand in the North 40 and shoot something in the South 40. Move. Get a, get on top of it. And I've never forgot that. And, you know, that was a pretty instrumental point of this guy handing me a bag of gear and saying, you should really pursue this. Um, so Panama. Panama was 1989. It was. And can you tell us a little bit about what went down there in, uh, in Panama? Well, I, this is pretty much, I've only been working on the streets for not not that long, and I was covering, I think it was the Gay Pride Parade in New York, and I saw this photographer uh, walking walking on the streets, and the guy looked like he had just sort of stepped off of a, a movie set about photographers. And, you know, very good-looking guy, long blonde hair, press credentials, the requisite photojournalism scarf, and uh, I was like, wow, that guy looks really interesting. So I went up and I introduced myself. And the photographer's name was Chris Morris. And he had just come back uh, from an assignment on, from the Philippines. And at that point, I hadn't really started to think so much about photography as a way outside of New York. I was very concentrated on working just in New York. And I was talking to him about his travels and was kind of became more and more interested. And so I asked Chris, where was he going next? And Chris said, oh, I'm going to Panama to cover, to cover the elections. And I said to him, wow, that's amazing. I'm also going to Panama. 
I didn't know where Panama was. I didn't know what was happening in <laughs> Panama. But I figured if this guy was going to Panama, you that, go to that Panama. was yeah, that was the place to go. And Chris looked at me and said, "Oh, that sounds great. I'll, I'll see you there." And he was a very nice guy, but kind of like wondering who the hell I was and why I was talking to him. And so this is this is so long ago. There's no iPhones. There's yeah. barely any internet. And uh, so I had to go back, research, figure out what was going on in Panama found out that there was this dictator named General Manuel Noriega that um, was going to hold elections to prove to the world that he was loved by his people. Legit. He was a legit guy. And so Noriega was uh, quite a character. He had really bad skin. Mm -hmm. And his skin was so bad that the New York Post called him Pineapple Face. And he would do crazy things. And so every few weeks, he'd be the front page of the New York Post. And by that time, I'd already been working for the New York Post on an assignment-by-assignment assignment basis. So I went to them, and I said, hey, would you uh, send me to Panama to cover the election? And for some reason, they said, yeah. Incredible. And they, gave, and they gave me an assignment. So I was very, very excited. And I saw Chris a couple more times, told him I was going. I actually talked to him about the story because I knew what was happening. And then probably about a week or so before... I was going to go. The New York Post fired their managing editor, and all travel was canceled. Mm. And so I lost my assignment, and I didn't have enough money to, to go on my own. And I ran into Chris by coincidence. And I was talking to Chris, and I was telling him what was happening. And, um, well, the way Chris remembers the story, I was crying hysterically, tears streaming <laughs> down my face. But I, I don't recall it exactly yeah, like we'll, that. we'll pretend that didn't yeah. happen. But I'm um, talking to Chris, and Chris said, you know, I usually travel with my wife. She's not coming with me on this trip. And the airline has a buy one, get one free oh, uh, no ticket way. special. So I have an extra, oh my extra God. ticket. And he said, I'm on assignment for Time Magazine. So there's an extra bed uh, in the room and there's an extra seat in the car. And Holy I'm looking cow. at this guy as he sort of turns to Santa Claus, like right before me. And I'm like, yes, I'll take you up on that entire <laughs> offer. Yes, yes, yes. On aside from the obvious of getting my expenses given to me by by Chris it was a chance to like work with who Chris was already he's even more famous now but he was already like one of the best photographers in the mm -hmm. world at the time so mm -hmm. it was like education plus plus uh, plus work that's maybe the best case scenario situation I've ever heard it was that's it incredible was, it was pretty amazing that's awesome and so off we went to off we went to Panama uh, the election was held the general lost the election he then nullified the election and the next day, the would-be victors came onto the streets to start an uprising. And I was able to, um, to take a photograph of the vice president-elect. Um, Ford? Guillermo? Guillermo Ford, yeah. who just died recently. Um, covered in blood and uh, being beaten up by paramilitary while the army just sort of watched. And that photograph wound up on the cover of Time and Newsweek and U.S. News in the same week. Which is r incredibly rare. Which is very rare. Very few photographers have, have done that. And the impact was pretty was um, pretty powerful. And within, um, within days, the United States started talking about what they were going to do. There's a photograph of the Deputy Secretary of State, Lawrence Eagleburger, holding up Time magazine in Congress as they're debating whether or not there should be military reaction. Now, was this the first time that you'd photographed something that was, let's say, conflict-level stuff, where you're in a fluid situation, violence, and you're trying to 
take care of yourself, but then also make photographs. Was this the first time? This was the first time. I think there was there was gunfire. I really no idea what it was. There was tear gas. There was people being beaten up. Um, people, I think, I think some people died that day. How difficult was it to overcome that and make pictures? I think it wasn't as difficult as you would think because I didn't really understand what was happening. So I was sort of just caught up, caught up in the moment and um, sort of focused on whatever was in front of me. So I'm sure that I made numerous safety mistakes um, at that particular time, but I was very, I was very fortunate. And in terms of for your career, obviously that's a major coup getting three editorial covers in the same week and the three primary news vehicles here in the U.S. In terms of career-wise, what did Panama open for you? What was different when you came home? Well, it it, it gave me something to talk about. It gave me something to show. I had, uh, at that point during the election, I'd been freelancing for AFP, uh, and it really solidified my relationship with them. They actually offered me offered me a job, which I turned down because I decided that I'd rather be a freelance photographer. Uh, but it really, the kind of a, the immediate moments, certainly in the next three, four months after that photograph was taken, my mentality was this was like really was about me, not about what I'd photographed, but the fact like, oh, I have the covers, I've got all these newspaper um, coverage, and, 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 and people now know who my name is, who I am, and so on. And, and it was like very much this sort of very self-indulgent moment. A self-indulgent moment for you. Yeah, because it wasn't really, I wasn't understanding the potential ramifications of, of what that photograph meant and what, what I had done. And it really wasn't until six months later in November of 89 when the United States invaded in. Panama. Yeah. And I was with the troops when they were going in, but later I saw the speech by the president. And when the president spoke about the photographs as one of the reasons why the United States was invading, everything changed for me in terms of like what it meant mm -hmm. to be a photographer, what it meant to be a photojournalist. And that was, that was a very important moment uh, for myself. And so from Panama on, you also have spent a, a significant portion of your life in the Balkans covering the Balkan War. And I'm trying to understand the jump from Panama to the beginning of the Balkan War. Were there other shoots in between that? And what about Panama? Obviously, you weren't freaked out by being in that kind of situation. So was there something about Panama that you said, that kind of fluid situation is, is what I'm here for. This is what I'm going to cover, and now I'm going to go to the Balkans. How did that sort of transpire? Well, there was a couple of years between Panama and the Balkans, and, and the world was changing pretty dramatically. So from from Panama, I went to China. Just I, I missed the, the violence in Tiananmen Square. I got there the next day. But there's all this momentous, momentous moments happening in the world. I was in Berlin when the wall came down. Uh, I went to... Um, to Liberia for the Civil War. I was in South Africa for the end of apartheid, which got violent, and then, and then obviously not. And uh, I went to the first Gulf War. I, I became a prisoner, an Iraqi prisoner after that. There were all these sort of moments that were happening. And, and what I had realized was that one of the things that I was really drawn to was momentous events where history is being made. And most often, that's happening in, in times of violence. And that when that is happening in times of violence, there are stories that need to be told, things that people need to know in order to make hopefully educated uh, decisions, whether it would be a politician making a decision mm -hmm. or a citizen making a decision about who to vote for or understanding if I give money to this organization, that will do X. So 
what really happened when I heard the president's speech in 89 was I really understood the role of, of images of photography in its ability to play, play a part in helping people understand what's going on. And that was a very important moment to me. And so it was just very, there was so much happening. So it was just like from place to place to place until I wound up in the Balkans. And so by the time you hit the Balkans, you were a pretty seasoned guy after all of those different stops in between and being held, held captive in uh, Iraq. So you've had, you had a pretty traumatic learning ground before you got to the Balkans. To some degree, yes. And the, what I remember about the Balkans were, were a couple of things. One, it was the way that I first heard that war described was it, as if uh, they were talking about the American suburbs and how it was first world country, developed, successful, and then suddenly on a Monday you're friends with your neighbors and on Tuesday you're firing at each other. And so it was this incredibly dynamic, fluid, uh, incredibly violent with with reasons dating back so far in history as to why this animosity existed. So what was the first, your entrance into that conflict? So my first entrance was I went to uh, Slovenia, which was the first republic. The first to break away. To break away. And on my way, I was going there by train because the airport had already closed uh, by the time I had arrived. And there was a young girl on the train and she was crying. And I asked her why she was crying. And she said, this is the end of Yugoslavia. Slovenia is first. And then she basically listed, it's going to go from Slovenia to Croatia to Bosnia to Kosovo to Macedonia. I mean, she kind of listed it all. And I laughed at her. I didn't laugh at her, but I said, no, that's not possible. There's no way that Europe would allow a violent breakup like this. It's not going to happen. Don't worry. This will be very short and, and it will be over. And of course she was right. And that's how over the next 10 years, I spent more than five years covering everything that, that she had spoken about. And I think one of the things that was, was fascinating was that it was in this supposed first world country mm-hmm. where they had whatever the modern, modern technology at that time was like a VCR and maybe a right. laptop. I mean, they, their homes looked like American suburbs homes and it wasn't like some something in, in the bush or the jungle or something like that. This was like, this. what was important about this was all the different factors that were coming into play to change uh, this country from what people thought was going to be incredibly successful mm-hmm. to uh, completely imploding. And the lessons that were happening there were lessons that applied not only to the, to the Balkans, but to other countries as well. So you spent five out of the ten, y- 10 years of that conflict, you were on the ground for five years. I was. And that just has to take, that, that's physically, that's a pretty monumental achievement when you consider what you're, what you're doing when you're there. Is, was there, w- did you have a primary base when you were there or was it, did it differ depending on which direction you were coming in from? It, it completely differed. There were different, I mean, first of all, it wasn't one war. There was the Slovenian war, then the Croatian war, then the mm-hmm. Bosnian war, then the Kosovo war, then the Macedonia. So really, you would, I would move uh, accordingly. The Bosnian War, of course, being the longest, so probably spent more time in Sarajevo in one place than, than others, but there was definitely a lot of travel. And of course, over those 10 years, I was working in South Africa, I was working in Haiti, I was covering other conflicts around the world. I was not wholly uh, specific, just, just covering that. Balkan-centric. Correct. So also, there were a lot of changes happening. I remember uh, I was coming into photography at that time, I was spending a lot of time looking at who was being published and what was being run. Your name was everywhere from 
Washington, D.C., to Bosnia, to all these things. It's when I first really saw you. And um, I'm just wondering, what was changing in terms of working? Were, was the, were the logistics changing? Were we transitioning? At this point, you were working for the news magazines. And how was a typical shoot? So you'd land in the country, shoot your film, and then travel back with it, or you would give it to a passenger on an airliner. How would you, what were the logistics like at that point? Well, as a magazine photographer, we're shooting uh, slide film. Mm -hmm. And while the wire photographers were shooting uh, negative and processing and transmitting in the various different degrees as that sort of uh, changed over the years, it was my job was was just to get the film out. So it would okay. depend on, on location. Sometimes, certainly during the conflict in Bosnia, sometimes we would have to drive um, for three days to get to the nearest airport crossing front lines, being shot at just to get our film out. And other times you would give it to another journalist or when the airport finally opened uh, in Sarajevo, we were able to put our film uh, on a flight. But as uh, as the war kept going, the technology that we were using uh, for that war changed. So it started out with me shooting slide film and shipping it to eventually doing the same thing as wire photographers and newspaper photographers, shooting color neg, processing it in the field, scanning it, on uh, a Nikon cool scan mm -hmm. uh, and then sending it out via a, a sat phone and then getting all the way into sort of like early versions of digital cameras. But mostly it was um, the last technology that we really used on, on mass, certainly during the war in Kosovo, which was the last major war, was shooting color neg and, and scanning it and transmitting it. So what, what emerged from your time in the Balkans is a book, Blood and Honey, which is one of the best books that I have. I've got a lot of books in my collection. It's oh, a book thanks. I look at a lot and, and reference for a lot of people. When did the idea of that book start to percolate? I think that probably in, in during the war in Kosovo, Gilles Perez had already done an amazing book called Farewell um, to Bosnia. Which I had a chance to buy, and I didn't buy it. I had a chance to buy Telex Iran. I didn't buy it. Yeah, I'm that, an idiot. That, that's sad. I know, it is. Um, and so that was his take on, on the Bosnian conflict. And, but and one of the reasons that why I kept continuing my coverage of that conflict was that I felt that I had been there in the beginning and I had been there throughout very significant moments. And I was one of the few people that really had a complete visual record of, of most of uh, the bigger events and, of course, some of the smaller events as well. And, but it really wasn't until until Kosovo and a conversation with probably some other photographers, I think Gilles included, uh, where it seemed like I probably should make a statement with, with this. And it was an understanding also in the general purpose of what I was doing because the photography itself really failed in its attempt to, to make changes. People basically ignored not only the photography but all the journalism that was mm -hmm. coming out of there. And so... When I realized sort of what my first impression that came from Panama where I said, oh, photography can have an impact and communicate, yeah. then when it doesn't do that, what do you do with the work? What happens to it? So this idea of building this body of evidence, this, this collection of documents becomes very important. And mm -hmm. so the book, therefore, is this depository of, of all this work where it can exist as as a piece that can say, you know what, 
this was all published. You all, everybody saw this, including the politicians that had the chance to make a decision, and you ignored it. So here is the evidence to prove to you, the world and future generations, that there was a huge failure, and maybe we can learn from this. It's and a so testament. See, exactly. It's evidence, history, et cetera. It, it is. Before you published that book, had you published any books bef- prior to that? Yeah, Blood and Honey was was my first uh, monograph, my first book, and it was very, it was actually very difficult uh, to find to find a publisher. So with who, Nan, who Nan, it? Nan Richardson uh, from Umbridge Editions um, packaged it. Allison Morley, who's the chairperson of the ICP documentary program, uh, was the editor, mm-hmm. and we eventually found a publisher from an imprint from, uh, I think, from Random House. Um, it's no longer in business, but they. They printed it, and, and the book actually sold out within six months. It was gone. That's incredible. Do you remember how many copies they? It was a small run, I think, between five and seven thousand copies. And then, and then the. That's the, pretty. And nice. then they went out of business, and then that was it. Oh, so there so. was no second, no, 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 no second printing. And before you published that book, did the did you? I sort of came through photojournalism school with this. I was sort of taught what a book was supposed to be, what it was supposed to look like, and what it meant in your career. Did you have a similar feeling about books, or was just this something that came about? And the second part of the question is, did what did it mean after it was out? Did it open doors? Did it did it have an Im- the impact that you was hoping it would have? Well, uh, in terms of the actual book, given that I had no formal education really in photography, then so I had no sort of real history to go back to. So. Just looking at books that I liked and, and by photographers that I admired gave me a little bit of understanding, but um, I think it was an idea, you know, it was sort of, it, it's put together in sort of general themes about about home and, and leaving and, and actual war and, and, and the impact of war and kind of their little sort of thematic chapters that run through and there's a lot of text, there's notes by me, there's uh, an amazing uh, two, fo- two uh, written essays uh, by David Reef, an incredible writer, and Chuck Sudetich, another great writer who was there for the New York Times. We were there together, and even the uh, French Foreign Minister Bernard Kushner wrote uh, wrote a piece. So it was. I think there's a lot of information plus maps and yeah. no, timelines, and so we tried to make it like a real sort of not just a photo book, but something a little bit more about that time. It's a, it, and it's a book that completely stands up over time. When I look through that, it is. It's a. It's not. I don't even like to call that just a photography book. It's a. It's a history lesson on on that entire conflict. It's great. And that's thank you because that's also <laughs> really tried very hard not to have it labeled as a photo book, but mm-hmm. as a history book. Yeah. To to be able to go sort of outside of our little that's photo smart. ghetto. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart. Um, by now, you've been working as a journalist for a long time. Your, your sort of system in place is working as a journalist. When we fast forward to today, is there how much? What percentage of your time is in the field, and what percentage is doing being the business side of being a photographer? I would say probably still a good seventy to seventy-five percent in the field, and and the twenty-five percent of making sure that the work that was done in the field gets out there and is disseminated properly in the sort of multi-platform world that we live in. That's so 75% of the time in the field. That's really good. Well, I think for a lot of photographers these days, the ratio is sort of inverted in the wrong direction. It's 90% promotion and business and 10% actually making pictures. So that's actually really nice to hear. I was recently watching a documentary about American soldiers in, in Afghanistan, and they're, they're young. I mean, they're really young, and they're in these heavy situations for extended periods of time, and they were asking what they do when they come back to the States, and their families are saying, hey, what's it like in Afghanistan? And one of the soldiers said, look, I don't talk to any, anybody about it because they probably really don't want to know, and it's not something that I want to talk about. 
you've been in a lot of traumatic situations and violent situations, and there's probably things that you wouldn't want to talk about. But at the same time, because you're a journalist, that's the point, is to be there and to spread that word about it. What's, what's the balance? Are there, are there times where you come back and say, I don't you know, really want to talk about this, but I, but I have to because that's my job? Well, I think those are there are two two different things with the journalists. It's like there's talking about your own personal experiences and how you felt about it, and then there's talking about actually what you're photographing, documenting the stories that you want to tell. So obviously, there's no point in not talking about what you've witnessed and what you've seen, because that's the whole purpose of going there. But in terms of like how much you talk about, like oh, I almost got killed today or something like that. I think that is a little bit harder to, to, to translate over, and it's not, I think, extremely necessary um, to do so in sort of common common conversation. But it is very important for us as, as journalists coming back from the field to understand how we're affected by it, how that's going to affect us in the future. And so I think one of the things that's definitely changed uh, in the course of my career is this understanding of what PTSD is mm-hmm. and how it affects us as journalists and how to treat it and it's, I think, especially for um, staff staff members, like bigger companies are taking it very seriously where somebody coming back has to talk to someone and so on. It's a little bit more difficult for, for freelancers. Uh, I think it's important. There's the Ockberg um, Society where it's de- a place dedicated to help journalists that cover trauma and how to understand stand things. So... Um, I think that's something also hopefully that the newer generations are, are learning in school about that. And th- my next question is about r- the relevance of war reporting in the Internet age, which is a completely different era than when you started. And has the ability to spread something so quickly and the ability for something to, say, go viral, has that affected your ability to work in the field in either a positive or negative way? Is it easier to work today? Is it harder? Are people a little more savvy of the fact that you know what you're making at that moment can be on around the world in a matter of minutes it's incredibly complex there are are positive results of this and there are a lot of negative results of it the positive is that you have the ability now to reach with the right mechanisms to reach an audience much greater than you ever were able to before which is amazing and Mm -hmm. fantastic However, the audience also, depending how they interact with the work, it also can be incredibly shallow and they can pass through it very quickly and it might not have the impact uh, that you want. That's a whole other conversation. In the field itself, it is becoming more and more dangerous for us um, because people are very conscious of the image and people are often, if you're posting almost in real time, the people that you're photographing, documenting around you will often will immediately see your mm-hmm. report. Yeah. And that is, um, that is incredibly dangerous. And there have been a number of situations where uh, journalists have been arrested, beaten, killed, because their reports are, are seen by the people that are not happy with it, mm-hmm. and they're still there. So that is, that is definitely becoming somewhat limiting. It's becoming very hard to sort of um, even for entry to X, let's say, so let's say you're going to cut, you're working in Syria, you have to go to a press center, and press center will Google you to see if they like your coverage or not of whatever you've done f- about them or in the past. If they don't like what you've done, worst case scenario or best case scenario is you get thrown out. Worst case scenario is you get arrested. So these are 
definitely things that are limiting our ability uh, as professionals to work in certain situations. Mm -hmm. Then you add the idea of citizen journalism to it and what that means in terms of interaction with the audience and it becomes it adds a whole other other level. So in the first time with citizen journalism or soldier journalism or whatever in that where a soldier or family or somebody would want you to be come here and document and tell the world because like, mm -hmm. I'm just a conduit. It's not like anything special about me. It's just like I represent a huge audience. I think you're special. That's sweet. But now they're like, I can reach the same audience through YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. I don't really need, need you, you anymore. Yeah. Uh, and to some degree, they're correct. They Probably their ability to get the work out there is, is not that difficult to reach the same sort of numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so that starts to diminish our capacity to be able to enter certain areas. And we look at something as, you know, I think kind of amazing is like what ISIS is doing today. They have a whole media section. Yeah, sure. Their soldiers have GoPros attached to them. They're very sophisticated. They're even now we're talking about today um, the, the last uh, hostage videos. They're trying to see if they were done on green screen or how like how sophisticated they are. So it's really quite it's really quite interesting. But there's it's it's very difficult to um, to convince somebody let me in so I can tell your story when they can tell it themselves. But on the flip side of that, the audiences that are that are looking at this, they have no idea what they're looking at. Mm -hmm. It's not being done with any professionalism. It's not being done with any ethics. You have no idea what the propaganda is by the time it gets to you. So the world itself is being seriously hurt by a, a lack of uh, proper independent or enough. It's definitely happening, but uh, there's not enough proper independent verified uh, journalism going on. And at the same time, there's less and less financial support uh, mm -hmm. from publications because their audience isn't as interested to go to them and so on. I mean, so it's a chain reaction, obviously. So what's the end game with this for people like yourself? I mean, in 10 years, what's what's the reality of being a, a journalist or a conflict photographer? Well, I think part of the end game is, is a hopefully a re-education or education of the newer generations coming up that there's one thing to sort of like quickly look at a YouTube video shot by whoever saying whatever, versus going to the New York Times or Time Magazine or looking at my work or other photographers from Seven. And that if you understand that if you come to somebody that's sort of verifiable, that this is, should be a real report with, with journalistic rules applied, that's something you can count on. And to be careful about um, kind of this sort of little bits and pieces coming from elsewhere. But until the audience is demanding mm -hmm. that, and then, therefore, if they demand it and watch it, there'll be advertising dollars or, or subscription dollars or whatever to help finance it. Uh, we're we're in trouble. But I think that I think that there is a bit of a backlash that people are kind of like they want some real statement statements with authority and voice on on trying to understand what's going on in the world. So this is a little bit of a tricky question, but what's the one thing? that you don't have that you really wish you had or need? And that can be anything. That can be a physical piece of equipment. That can be a resource. If you had to narrow it to one thing. I think it would just be probably just, I mean, I think that myself and, and certainly Seven and the combination of all of us, we have a pretty good size audience. But I think that if we could build that 
to a larger audience that would enable us to to continue to work to tell tell stories in a better way mm-hmm. so I think that trying to make sure that because when people see the work they engage we just need to sort of get and we, we are doing it but we need to do it more to sort of rise above the noise and when you are looking for inspiration or you're looking for to for creativity where do you go for that is it literature is it music is it fellow photographers are there anything that, any names that you could share of authors or musicians or things that really sort of inspire you dan milner well i mean that's obvious <laughs> i'm here it's hard for me to be in the city you know to get around without all the all the crowds but the mob I made outside it is a little ridiculous yeah i'm a little little afraid of that <laughs> it is it is some other photographers it's also um i think um I mean, I'm sorry, photographers within the realm. I think uh, Claire Rosen, who's a fine art photographer, sure. is a great yeah. a great inspiration. Uh, I think that it's also just everything that's around you. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about photography is it allows you to sort of jump into all of these different worlds. Uh, and so when you're doing that or you're about to do that, there's anything around you will be inspirational. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. It's uh, always good to talk with you, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. 